All right. So today we have a very special guest. Uh, some of you may know him as Mac the VC from Twitter, but I'm very excited to introduce uh, Mac on Sokka's Is That So. Thanks for being here, Mac. Thank you for inviting me, Sokka. It's a pleasure to be here, man. No worries. Well, let's just get straight into it. So, Mac, um, everyone has their own journey and intellectual journey to get to VC. I'd love to know about your uh, intellectual journey to coming into this VC space, where it all started and how you got in. Yeah, I'll try to do the shortened version, but essentially, you know, I was, I became a software engineer. I was working for the government, um, had top secret clearance in the Department of Defense. And within that, uh, while I was doing that, I started off in the student program before I transitioned full time. And within that program, I got to meet this gentleman by the name of Patrick Jackson. Today, Patrick is the CTO of a company called Disconnect, a VPN company. But back then, he was a general, he was a young man who was obsessed with being the black Mark Zuckerberg. Right? Like that was his thing. He was a, he was a computer science major from Howard. And like Pat was just, he he had this Silicon Valley mindset before we knew what Silicon Valley was. Right. Like he was all about making products that could make money while you slept. Right. He's the reason why I learned PHP and MySQL because that's what Facebook was built off of. Um, and for context, you know, iPhone comes out in 07. He makes his first iPhone app in 08, right? He's that guy. Wow. Um, and so he was the first, like, I had always been entrepreneurial, but he was the first one to show me how, like, what we were doing as our job could become a generate, uh, could generate capital. And so that led me and a couple of my friends to starting my first business in 2010. Um, after four and a half years, never raised any money, but went through two accelerators, learned how this all worked. We sold that the IP of that company to a division, uh, to a Fortune 100 company, um, started another company after that, raised some capital, that one didn't work out. Um, and then my, my transition gets weird because I get a job at a marketing firm um, building e-commerce websites, which was not what I saw for myself after being CEO of two startups. And um, after an event where they got a client I didn't agree with ethically, I had been there for a year, I quit. And the day after, or the Monday after I quit, I got an email, community-wide email from um, the investment arm of the state of Maryland saying they were looking for a fund manager. And as an entrepreneur, like any entrepreneur who's ever gone to raise capital at some point has probably thought to himself, like, I could do this. I, I have friends who have startups. I can invest in companies. I was no different. Um, and so I applied for a job at a venture firm off of the email. And four and a half months later, they hired me. So uh, very unusual way to get in the job in VC, and it was a state-ran fund, so that's how I broke it. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, and you kind of mentioned having something work for you while you sleep. Um, sort of that's what software and that ability to scale. Um, walk me through a little bit about how you came to that realization that look, you couldn't keep exchanging your time for money. You kind of had to create a platform or something that would make money outside of you exchanging your time for it. I think it was, I mean, so you got to understand. So I was like, when I got that job working for the government, I was like 20. Um, within like 18 months of working as a government contractor, I had a six-figure job. So I'm like, I'm like 22 with a house and a bunch of cars, and like making a bunch of money. And, you know, it was just kind of like, what do you do next? Well, you do the same thing for the next 30 years and you retire. Like, well, that's not what I wanted to do. And, you know, Patrick was always talking about, you know, making company, you know, building things that make money while you sleep. Because, you know, we're engineers. And as a software engineer, you're a builder. So if you're a builder, you make products. And when you make a product, you sell it. So it's like 
me and my friends are like, that makes sense. You know, let's start making products and start making websites. We can, we have the skills, you know, you put it up there that makes money for you. Found out the hard way. That's not how it actually works. You know, we, that's what we thought. We went off thinking that we were going to build something or we just generate, you know, money as we were, you know, when we were working or when we were doing our day jobs, but, but realize at some point that what we were building was a business and we had to actually put time and energy and there was a bunch of skill sets we didn't have that we needed to learn. So it started off with this novel idea. Like, oh, you put up a website, you just make some money. And then it came to like, no, you got to put in this work and this effort. You got to find customers. Customers don't just come to you. Got to do business development. Got to do networking. Got to find investors. What the hell is an investor? Where do you find? Like all these things we started running into. And that's kind of leads me down the path of like, you know, really getting into the startup ecosystem and eventually as a VC. Fantastic. And I mean, nowadays there are accelerators for venture capital firms and things like that, but man, you had to do it all on your own pretty much. I mean, you were starting from scratch with very little support. Walk me through, I guess, the first couple of steps, because there's everything from like regulation to finding investors to doing all sorts of things. What was ground zero for you? Was it sort of like creating your brand awareness on Twitter or like what was kind of ground zero for you? I mean, ground zero was getting my job with the state, right? So I'm working for the state. I'm doing early stage seed investing. Um, and so I'm now learning and cutting my teeth on how to be a VC. You know, what does it mean to be an investor? What does it mean to generate proprietary deal flow? What does it mean to negotiate with founders? You know, what's going on in the ecosystem? And then about four months into that job, I came together, I came to my bosses with a proposal to create a pre-seed fund specifically for black entrepreneurs. And so, um, and I was able to get a black owned bank in Baltimore to put up half the money for that. Um, and they let me do it. And I ran that for three years. It ended up being the first and only state backed pre-seed fund for women and minorities in the country. And so through that whole process, I'm trying to learn as much as I can because on the one part of my story is I actually dropped out of college to take my job working for Northrop Grumman. Um, so I don't have a college degree and I don't have a finance background. So here I am doing venture investing, starting a new fund for the state. And like, I don't have these credentials. And so I'm spending all my time making sure I understand how this works. Um, and then early on, um, I'm reading books. I'm doing podcasts. I'm listening to not just VC podcasts, but LP podcasts. And then um, I think the, the real big moment was... Um, you talked about VC accelerators, not really accelerated, but 500 startups has a, pro, has a program called VC Unlocked. And so in 2019, I went to the one they had at Stanford. And here I am with Stanford professors who are also professional VCs who are teaching this class. And I'm like, I know most of this. Like, none of this is really new. <laughs> and then that course forced me for the first time to make a deck for fun. And so I do the deck and I pitch it and I got a clear reaction from folks. It's like, maybe there's really something here. <laughs> and so like, that's the beginning of me thinking about, you know, like, I, like I've been thinking about one day I want to raise a fund, but now it's like, okay, I think I can do it. But there's still things, things I got to figure out, right? Like I have no clue how to fundraise for a fund. Um, and so I, I'm going through and then come to 2020, I meet this founder off of Twitter in um, Dallas, Texas, a Latin founder doing really cool B2B SaaS company, has revenue, has partnerships, nobody wants to fund him. So I'm like, all right, this is crazy. 
I know people who like to invest in space. Let me do a, a special purpose vehicle, SPV, do a one-off. And that's when one of my advisors said, hey, here's 250000 Go raise that fund. I don't want to invest in this one company. I'm going to invest in every company you see. So go raise that fund. And I'm like, eh, you know, George Floyd just happened. You know, COVID is just happening. The world is crazy. He's like, no, you should do this. And then my personal network got me to about 400K and I, and I was stuck. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I, didn't, I, I never actually learned how to raise from LPs. And I never grew a network of LPs because I worked for an investment arm that only invested in the state of Maryland. So my network, I had a bit of a national network, but it was with other VCs. It wasn't really with LPs. And so that's when the Twitter thing happened. So like, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, like at, that, at that point, I started tweeting more actively. And I noticed as I was tweeting, like more and more other VCs were following me. And I'm like, okay, if I see somebody who's a VC that follows me, I'm going to ask them for a meeting because I ultimately want to learn from them, like, how do you raise a fund? And within my first, like, 15 or 25 meetings, I'm having a meeting, I meet with Elizabeth Yen from Hustle Fund. I'm talking about what I'm thinking, what I'm doing. And she asked me what was my minimum for my fund. I told her, and she's like, I think I could back that. And that was the first time I realized that GPs could be LPs and funds. So I was like, huh. So then that became my strategy. I and mean, then that's, so then I made sure like anybody was a VC who followed me, you got a DM and we're going to meet and we would just see what happened. And so that's how I famously had 1,100 meetings from the middle of, September, from the middle of June to the middle of September, 2020. The actual number on my calendar, if you count it, was 1,128 meetings, not including phone calls, any uh, impromptu meetings, right? So the number is actually probably higher. But like, that was how I got kickstarted. And those 1,100 meetings got me to the soft circle, my first, let's call it 2 million. Um, and so it was just all pure hustle. And I don't suggest anybody else do it that way. Like, it's not the smartest way to do it. It was just like the, the way I knew how to, or it was like the, the idea I came up with. And like, yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. I definitely burnt out, but it got me going. So looking back on that, actually, then, what would you recommend uh, someone do during that phase uh, that would be different from what you did? Because most people think, hey, reach out to my network, maybe create a CRM system, start to you know get meetings in. But what would you do differently then? So I'd probably be more like prescriptive, like my friend Yohei. Uh, so young Yohei from Uncapped Capital, what he did was he went on LinkedIn and he searched for like the terms LP, family office, things like that. And anybody who was a, a, a second connection he went to his first connection to make an intro mm. and so he that's how he started getting his first couple meetings mm. right and then he was becoming more prescriptive of using his network to make that happen um that's that's far more prescriptive way of doing it yeah um i also might have like started looking for and granted it was covid at the time but virtual events to go to because what i didn't understand about the industry was a lot of especially institutional lps they source their deal flow from these consultants who they work with. And the consultants find folks at these conferences and these events. So you got to be in the room at these conferences doing that networking. So I would probably done a lot more virtual events to try and be in those circles. Um, but I will say, you know, the Twitter things worked out really well for me. When I started doing this, I had 2,500 followers. Today I had like 63,000. Wow. Um, and that's over the last like 18 months or so. And so like, that's, that's been a real advantage also in my process that's been helpful. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, have did, I'd have been more 
strategic and using my network or trying to use my network to get the LPs as opposed to just like spray and pray on the internet. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, spray and pray is probably the more difficult method. But actually on that note, um, there's sort of two ways that you can go about raising a fund. One is sort of uh, publicly raising um, and there's a certain uh, regulatory framework around that. And then the other method, which is sort of without doing it publicly, um, and you don't necessarily need the regulatory uh, limitations or anything like that around there. But I wanted to understand a bit more about your choice to do the publicly, um, you know, open, hey, I'm raising a fund. Like what made you choose that route? Because that can be a bit tougher when it comes to making sure your investors are accredited and things like that. Yeah, it was. Um, so I'm, I'm going to raise the fund. I'm going through the process. I'm starting to build up this Twitter presence. Twitter's starting to become more and more a part of what I'm doing. And then I met this amazing individual, this woman by the name of Kate Broderick from the W Fund. In case like, hey, have you heard of Angels List Rolling Fund? They're doing this new thing. You should check it out. And so the thing about that was the rolling fund allowed for people to publicly solicit. And so I reached out to Angelist and found out that they were using this, de this designation called 5060. Most times when people raise money where you're a startup or a fund, you typically raise them the designation of 506B, which means you can't publicly talk about it, but you can have up to 30 unaccredited investors in, in whatever you're doing. 506C, which actually came out in, 20, in 2013 as part of the Jobs Act, allows for you to public solicit, but all of your investors must be accredited investors. And you have to do some level of work to certify that they're accredited. Interesting. And so um, I was like, well, with my Twitter thing working, if I could probably talk about it, this could be really cool. Um, and so that's what the beginning of the idea of using the 506C method and really using the, the public to raise. And then the benefit of that was it allowed me to now build this really large brand that got me access and into rooms that I probably didn't belong in. Um, but what I would say is that is a method that worked really well for me. I don't necessarily suggest that for everybody because you have to want to be front facing, right? If you're not the kind of person who wants to be very front facing, don't do that. Because, <laughs> you know, as you build that brand and as you build up that network, everybody wants your time. Everybody wants to be around you. If you go to a conference, everybody's going to be coming up to you. Like you have to want to be front and center. If that ain't you and that ain't your personality, don't do it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I wanted to ask a bit about the, uh, not necessarily barriers to entry, but there's a lot of costs involved and legalities in terms of incorporation, making sure you have your tax and audit documents, making sure you have your LPA agreements, all that. So, I mean, was there a biggest or what was the biggest barrier you faced when it came to actually getting the actual fund set up itself? So initially, and this is pre me actually going out to market to, um, to raise the fund, was I'm not, uh, I'm not a wealthy individual, right? Um, I was a state employee, so I actually didn't make that much money. And the biggest thing for me was, was understanding, like, I didn't know how to raise from LPs, but I figured if you gave me 18 to 24 months, I could figure out how to raise five to 10 million, right? You give me enough time, I can figure out. The, the issue and the real big barrier was one, I didn't have money for a GP commit and I was able to get over that. 
But two was I knew I didn't have the money to not only just sustain and live over the 18 to 24 months, but to really travel, to go meet with LPs, right? Pre-COVID, Zoom wasn't as big of a deal for like these type of meetings where I would have been traveling, even if I'm just driving around, you know, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area and putting, you know, putting gas in my car, let alone having to fly out to different parts of the country to meet with LPs just for a day or two to fly back just for them to tell me no, right? Like that stuff starts to add up really quickly. And so I didn't have the capital to do that. So that was like one of the biggest hurdles. And, but then again, you know, COVID comes around and now everybody's doing everything in Zoom. And so that's the way I was able to get around that. From a legal side and setup side, you know, um, we end up going with Carta, but Angels List offers this as well, where they default payments until your first close. Um, a lot of lawyers will defer payment to your first close if they believe you can do it. Um, and so some of those barriers, you know, kind of get moved out of the way if people have conviction in you. But that initial, like, having capital to just live and do what you need to do during the fundraising process, that was, like, one of the biggest hurdles. And then, you know, from a, a standpoint of the GP commit, I just decided not to have one. So wow. okay. <laughs> I didn't have a GP commit in my fucking one. That was an option for you? I thought that was kind of like standard. Everyone has to have one. Yeah, that's what they tell you. And then I told them I didn't have a GP commit because I didn't have the money. Mm. And somehow all of my LPs were able to get out of their own way and say, sure, we'll still back you. Uh, I'm trying to normalize that. That needs to be more of a thing. Yeah, I love that because it's sort of like where there's a will, there's a way. Like you'll kind of figure it out if you, if you really want something bad enough. Uh, in yep. terms of, in terms of the, I mean, so, all right, you've, you've got the legal structure, you've got all that together. You finally, you know, deploying capital um, and congratulations. I know that you recently got to, you know, your second fund that you're starting to raise right now, where I'm not sure how far you're getting along with that. But um, I know that a big part of being successful in this industry is your track record. Um, now that you've built a track record over the first, you know, fund, how much or what, what's the biggest difference you've seen now when it comes to raising your second fund and, you know, speaking to LPs or having the conversations now versus when you first started out? People know who I am now, right? People know who I am. People want to meet me. People want to talk to me. Um, and I, I, I have two, I have like over 200 LPs in my fund one, right? And so that network of them and making introductions to LPs has been strong. Also, I have several institutions in my fund one, which is actually, you know, an unusual thing for not only a fund one, but for a, a, such a small fund, a $10 million fund. And so having early conversations with those institutions who are already backing me to come in for fund two, all of that, um, that's the biggest difference, right? Like I can find LPs now, right? I'm also, um, I'm also part of Kaufman Fellows. So I'm a, call, I'm a part of the Kaufman Fellowship and that is an amazing network, right? I, I was having lunch one day at our last module and this guy sat down next to me. I told him what I did. I'm expecting him to tell me, you know, what fun he works at. He's like, oh yeah, I work at Georgetown's endowment. Okay, you're now my new best friend, <laughs> right? Um, so that's the biggest difference. It's like I, for fun one, I didn't have that network and I had to figure out how to build it. And I did that on Twitter. Fun two, I have the network. Now it's just a matter of, do people believe in my strategy, the story and what we've been doing so far in Rare Breed? That's the biggest difference. Yeah. Speaking of your strategy, actually, uh, you always have to have a thesis when you first start out. 
I wonder, has your thesis changed from fund one to fund two, or have you kind of stuck to the same strategy? Because the world has changed pretty drastically over the last two years. But I wonder, has your thesis changed at all? No, our thesis hasn't changed from fund one to fund two. What we recognized in fund one was that we were completely undercapitalized from what we wanted to do. You know, um, in our first, call it 13 months of deploying capital out fund one, we have done 34 investments with six following loans. We've had opportunities now for nine file for nine markups, nine follow one opportunities, and we have another three coming up right now. So it's going to be 12 follow one opportunities, you know, within call it the first 14, 15 months of our fund. And for the ones we did follow on, there was really small checks. And for the ones that are coming up, we can't follow on. Um, and so the ability to write those early small checks up front, but then to really double down on your winners is something we want to be able to do. Um, and so that's just a big thing. We just typically down fund to get us where we actually ultimately want to go. Yeah. And another thing that's pretty interesting as well is apart from giving startups capital, they always look for a value add of some sort, right? Whether it is uh, hiring or talent networks, or you have a specialty that you can advise them on, whether it's product or marketing or things like that. What was your value add when you first started the fund? And has that changed actually over time because of maybe your, your network has expanded or things like that? So, you know, VCs always say, you know, we're going to be value add, we can help. And so I typically say for most VCs, you should be able to do two of three things really well post-investment, help companies with follow-on funding, partnerships, or customers. You do two of those things really well with follow-on funding being one of them, we're going to do pretty good helping the company. Um, but what we do at Rare Breed is we ask our companies to treat us like employees. When you need something, tell me. Text me, email me, call me, let me know when you need something because we're partners. Um, and also, that gives the entrepreneur the mindset of wanting to reach out when they need help which makes it easier for me because very, because for a lot of VCs, we say we want to be value-add then end up, you know, not helping as much. And a lot of us just out of sight, out of mind, because we still got our day jobs. We still got to manage the fund. We still got to find new companies. We still got to do deals. Like there's still a whole bunch of other stuff on our plate where our sole focus isn't solely on our portfolio companies. You know, it's just one, it's one of the tasks on our plate, but the more a company can be proactive and letting me know what they need help with, the more I can help. Nice. I love that answer. And thinking about larger funds, so obviously you have grand ambitions, but obviously with those uh, come hurdles as well. So if your fund size gets larger, it's harder, or at least the perception is that it's harder to make a multiple on a hundred million dollar fund or a billion dollar fund versus a 10 mil, um, simply because of the math and the way it works out. What's your thought around having a bigger fund and perhaps um, trying to mitigate the multiples that you'll end up having on a bigger fund versus when you first started out? I think I'm going to spend a large portion of my career trying to debunk a bunch of things that we see in venture, mm. right? Just like I don't have a GP commit. The, the common way of thinking is if you raise a larger fund, you have to write larger checks. Mm. Yes and no, right? There exist strategies where you continue to write smaller checks and more smaller checks just because you have a larger fund or write larger checks earlier than a larger fund. Um, I mean, you look at funds like 500 Startups Fund One, right? It's a $50 million fund, over 300 companies. It's like north of 10X, right? That flies completely in the face 
of everything we're told by, you know, traditional VCs. Like, that's not how you're supposed to do it. But I think there are other models and other ways to go about it. And I think people get so caught up in the portfolio construction sometimes. Because, like, once you get to that point of, like, saying, hey, we need to hit X percent ownership in a company, then that inherent, then you're inherently saying, hey, if I find an amazing company with an amazing founder that I can't get my ownership in, I have to turn it down. Mm. And that's kind of a perverse way of thinking for me. Like my job is to invest in the most amazing founders, and amazing companies I can, because I'm gonna get a higher chance of getting returns from it, as opposed to needing to hit that, but also hit my ownership target and whatever other things I need to do. And so for me, I always want to be like, hey, if I find an amazing company, I back that. Um, and I always go back to an advisor of mine who tells the story of how um, he had somebody send him this company. And he loved the company, loved the founder, but the company's valued at 600 million. He thought the company was overvalued. Here's the problem. That company happened to be Uber. Oh, okay. So if we had gotten an Uber at the $600 million valuation, yeah. he'd be looking really good right now. <laughs> but the idea was, oh, that number's so high. I can't get my ownership. This doesn't make sense. And really, when you start thinking about that, it, it just perverses the way you do it. So I'm always thinking about in terms of multiples. Like if I put in 500000 a day at a seed round, what are the top end multiples I can get? Okay, so if I get a 50x multiple on that money, can I return my fund? If I get a 50x multiple on that money, can I return at least more than half of my fund? Probably, right? And so when you think about in terms of multiples as opposed to ownership percentage, right, it gives you a different way of, of going about investing, which is very different from like lowercase, right? So like lowercase fund one, I think it's like 6 million or something like that. And it returned over 300 million because what Chris Saka noticed was as he's building his portfolio, oh, Uber's the company. That's the one that's going to be a winner in my portfolio. And then he doubled down and spent all the money he could to buy up as much of Uber as he possibly could. That was his only goal. It was like, how much of this company can I own? And that's why people like the concentrated ownership is, uh, strategy, because if you find that one and you put all your money there, the multiples you can get back from that are so much higher. But then like, if I'm looking at my portfolio right now, if you ask me which one of these companies in your portfolio are going to be the Uber, <laughs> I, I could probably point to maybe three or four of them. Like, maybe it could be one of these. And at the end of the day, I'm probably wrong on all of them. <laughs> right? And so like that's, so I'm trying to mitigate from that because the flip side is if Uber doesn't become what it ends up becoming, then Chris Saka's fund plummets and that's the risk, right? And that's also why in Rare Breed, like no, we have, no company has a position larger than 5% of the fund. So I mean, the largest, the most money we can ever put in a company is 500K. No matter how many rounds it is, no matter how we do it, like that's the largest position we'll take. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, even as an angel investor, you know, it was one or two companies that really, you know, created that three or four X across the entire portfolio to make up for the rest of them. So it's a very interesting dynamic. As you mentioned, you know, Chris Sacco is doubling down on that. But I want to touch on something you mentioned, which is really interesting around finding the right companies. You know, if you find the right ones, you can get those multiples and we can dispel some of these notions that people have out there about, you know, larger funds not being able to return and things of that nature. But specifically here, what you're seeing now in the country is um, 
good opportunities and good founders can be found anywhere. It's not just in Silicon Valley anymore, right? There are Canadian companies. There are companies in, in Baltimore, everywhere around the world. So there's this democratization of access and of good founders all around the country. And you're a bit of a pioneer in that sense. I mean, you must have been looking in your local market and in places that people weren't looking to find these gems um, that were rough or unpolished that have become something big or could become something big later on. But I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of this democratization or the um, the the lowering of barriers beyond Silicon Valley because there are opportunities everywhere now. Yeah, I mean, I, so th this also goes back to like the way I started my career in venture. One, I was a founder coming out of Baltimore, right? And then at one point I worked for the investment arm of the state of Maryland where I had to find the best early stage startups in the state of Maryland, which transitioned to finding the best early, early stage startups ran by black founders in the state of Maryland. You get really good at like deal sourcing you have to do when you get narrow like that, right? Um, and so it was easy for me to recognize the talents everywhere. And so that just kind of permeated as I started the fund. But what I would say is we're seeing a lot more democratization because of so much virtualization that we've had over the last 18, 24 months. But my fear is as we start to do more in-person um, in events, that we're gonna take a step back. Mm. Cause it's always easier to just do what's right in front of you. Mm. It's so much easier for me to find a founder at an event and then meet them up for coffee the next week than it is for me to have to go through all the digital you know, ways to meet founders. And so I don't know how well that sticks I think people are going to be more open to doing it. I think there are folks in Silicon Valley who won't tell you that you can only build a unicorn in Silicon Valley, but there are folks there who still feel that way, right? And so I don't know how long it takes before that changes or when that changes. Um, but you know, for this moment in time where founders who normally wouldn't have gotten found funding are getting funded now, the more of those founders that we, that we see have success the more we'll start to see money, you know, pour into place. I mean, I always look at a company like Shipt. Shipt got acquired by Target for half a billion dollars. Shipt is a company based out of Birmingham, Alabama. Can you imagine how far $500 million goes in Birmingham, Alabama? Can you imagine how much that company does for that local ecosystem and those communities, right? These are now high paying jobs in the middle of Birmingham, Alabama, right? Like, a like less than three miles away from their headquarters is where a lot of things that happened during the civil rights was going on. The church where the little girls were bombed at is literally like two miles away from ship's headquarters. You want to talk about changing communities? Need more of those. We don't need more like, you know, Silicon Valley unicorns, like, you know, having these companies in these places. And the more we have those kind of success stories, the more we'll see them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. And, uh, you know, some people think the uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem is generally dying, but I think it's just shifted. Um, as you mentioned, you know, it's gone virtual. There are places like Alabama now that are having companies that are worth billions. So things have shifted. And I wanted to get your take on how do you discern between a fad, a temporary change in either shift behavior or ecosystems versus something that's going to be more permanent? For instance, nowadays you hear about Web3 or some people still think crypto is a fad, even though I think it's here to stay. I mean, the data you know, speaks for itself. But how do you discern between something being temporary 
versus a long-term trend shift in either the market or in, in the companies you're looking at? I think it's hard to tell that kind of stuff, right? I mean, you can look at a company like Peloton, like their stock's taking a massive hit, but it's because, not just because of like some of like, you know, yeah, that their, their, their products are like hurting babies and like killing people in TV shows, but it's more of a fundamental of a business model of, they were basically selling you these in-home workout products, but where the real money came from, these subscription services for doing the videos, right? Well, that's okay when you're starting with a very specific consumer. As you start to go to mass adoption, you get the same kind of issue that gyms have. But the big difference between Peloton and a gym is when you get a membership at a gym and you stop going, you then have to physically go back to that gym, fill out paperwork, and sometimes have to bring in a doctor's note to, end the, to cancel your, your membership. Sometimes it's just a lot easier, like that one year membership going, like whatever. With Peloton, I just gotta go to a website and say, I'm done. And so the moment you realize, man, my Peloton's turned into a coat rack, <laughs> right? <laughs> but like early on, I don't know if you can, I don't know if people can see that. And so really as an investor, what you wanna focus on is just like the basic fundamentals of the business, mm. right? How is, the, how is the business growing and why? Like, is this a business that went from zero to 400,000 downloads because they got, they went viral and they had an amazing TikTok? Okay, that's interesting. But what happens over the next three months after that? <laughs> right? Is this something sustainable? Is this a one-off? Right? Um, how is the company growing and what's your retention rates? You know, like everything comes down to business fundamentals. And if you do that, and if you think about companies that way, it makes it easier for you to avoid fads and biases. I'd be like, hey, if you tell me, all right, you got this company that sells product to women. I don't understand this, but they're paying a premium for it. They keep coming back and they're always telling all their friends how much they love it. Well, I just explained Spanx, <laughs> right? I don't need to know why women love it per se. All I need to know is like, hey, they pay a premium. They tell everybody they love it and they keep coming back. Well, that's the baseline of a good business, <laughs> right? And so like, when you think about companies in that way, then it doesn't become about web three or FinTech. Or, no, be like, are you, are, you amazing, are you an amazing founder who's got a really strong hustle, who's got some tailwinds for timing and other things going on that are leading you to potentially having a successful business? Okay, I can bet on that all day, every day. Nice, I love that. So what are some of the telltale signs that you have seen over the past couple of years, um, whether it's either from a business fundamentals perspective or from a founder perspective um, that makes you a bit nervous or apprehensive to invest in one business versus another? Are there certain things that would give you sort of spidey senses or you know, get your, your senses going that this might not be good, even though there are uh, appearances of a good business on the surface? Overvaluations, like valuations have gotten really kind of crazy and out of control. And then also seeing like non-experienced founders raising capital or high valuations, where when you start to dig into the business, some of those business fundamentals don't make sense. It's like, hey, we're doing great. We did 50,000 revenue last month. We're up by 25%. We're doing great. You know, we're raising this round. Cool. Dig into the business. Okay. The month before you did five transactions that got you 25,000. But last month you did two transactions that got you to 50. So you're trying to do some hand waving with the dollar amounts of revenue. In actuality, I need to know 
transactions. Your month, your amount of transactions actually went down, mm. not up. Mm. But you're using that number of how you're going up to raise significant amount of capital at a high valuation. I'm out. <laughs> right? I could be completely wrong, right? And that could be a really strong business. But from what little information I have to work on, I don't actually know if this is a good business or not. I know how you're positioning it and that's being a good storyteller and like, hey, do your job, family. Go raise that money. But for me, it's doing my due diligence and digging in. It's like the story you're telling me doesn't add up with what's actually happening in the business. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of that in the last 18 months. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're almost coming up on time. We've got a few minutes left. I want to be really respectful of your time. But um, if, if you could sort of forecast into, let's say, 2030, 2035, you know, thinking about the venture capital industry, what would you like to see this industry look like at that point in time, whether it's the types of businesses or even the structure, maybe they're VC DAOs by that time, who knows? But what would you like to see in 10, 15 years time? I hope to see a far more diverse set of investors and specifically GPs and also LPs in the space. And I hope to see that funds like mine and my contemporaries who have raised their funds over the last 18 to 24 months show successful portfolios. Because if we don't show successful portfolios and successful funds, it's gonna make it harder for the next group of underrepresented GPs to try and raise. Like 2020, 2021, and probably 2022 vintage are gonna be like the, the, the marks that people go back to to see like, hey, we talked a lot about diversity back then and gave money to a lot of black and brown and women fund managers. How do they do? So 10 to 15 years from now, I hope to see that we outperform. I hope to see that we all did well. And I hope to see that the work that we do today leads the way for the next generation to come behind us and really truly get to a point where this industry is fully diverse. Fantastic. I think that's a great note to end the uh, podcast on. we got to have you back for another episode, but how can people reach out to you? Um, and if there's any action that you'd like for our audience to take, please feel free to let them know now so that they can, they can do it after the show. Check me out on Twitter uh, as at Matt Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. Hit me up, tweet at me, DM me, uh, talk to you in the Twitterverse, folks. Awesome. Thanks, Mac. Thank you.